Hi, before you watch this message, we want to invite you to support our ministry. We are currently working to raise $2 million by September 2021 to break ground on our first permanent home in over 10 years of bringing an ancient faith to a modern world. Our building will allow us to do so much more with our ministry, including improving the quality of the messages you enjoy here every week. To learn more and donate, visit morethanabuilding.org. This week on Wednesday, okay, in three days, we're going to begin construction on a piece of land that we purchased two years ago. And we are now, I don't want to say days, probably months away from having a church home in Arlington. Yeah, that's worthy of clapping. Thanks be to God. And as I mentioned before, is it's been 10 years. That's how we started, we started STSA almost 10 years ago. So by the time the building is done, probably be about 11 years. 10 years of stacking and unstacking chairs, 10 years of lugging carts, 10 years of dropping projectors and praying the prayer of, please God, don't let it be broken. Please God, don't let it be broken. 10 years of people, me, meeting, me, me meeting people on the street, which actually just happened again yesterday, me meeting people, telling them I'm a priest, and they say, okay, where's your church located? And then I got to go through the whole thing. Well, that kind of depends. Are you coming on a Saturday? Because we're located here. If you're on a Sunday, we're here. You want to come on a Monday to Friday? That doesn't, we don't really exist. We have been for the past 10 years in Arlington as, I, as a concept more than a church. Because even here, and as we are here in Leesburg, is that by the time what we are, I always say we're like a traveling circus. Okay, we bring, come in on Sunday morning with our vans, okay, and we unload all of our stuff. When everyone is dead asleep on a Sunday morning, at 7 o'clock in the morning, everyone's asleep. We unload our vans, we put up our tent, we do our stuff, we do our act, and then by the time everyone has woken up, we pack up and we split out of town till the following week. So unless you're up between the hours of 8 a.m. and noon on Sunday, which is everyone's sleeping day in the community, you don't even know that we exist. But after 10 years, we're almost there. Okay, we're on the verge of having a church home. And that's why we're doing this series called More Than a Building, because we need to ask ourselves this question. Is what is church? What is church? When people say, oh, we're going to build a church, or our church is here, what is church? Is church just a building? Or as you can probably guess what my answer is going to be, is it more? If you took a survey on the street and asked people, what is church? What comes to mind when I say church? What do you think people would say? Random survey. People would say what? Church is chicken? Oh, church is chicken? <laughs> okay, as someone who used to live in D.C., there's a place called Church is Chicken, which is almost as high class as Popeye's and those kind of establishments, okay? I think most people... If you'd say, what comes to mind when, 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 you, when you say church? Most people would say, that's church. They'd point to like a building. Yeah, there's a church over there in that corner. There's a church. People think of church as maybe an event. I've heard people say church equals the longest hour of my week. That's what some people say. And then I know they're clearly not orthodox, because if they were orthodox, it's the longest two and a half hours of my week. Okay, they wouldn't say one hour. A lot of people, what church is, is fighting with my parents, fighting with my kids fighting with whoever it is that I, I happen to live with. Some people would say church is the most judgmental place that I attend. Some people say it's the most loving place that I attend. Some people say it's full of hypocrites. Some people say it's full of, full of, full of friends. Some people say it revives my soul. Some people say it puts me to sleep on a weekly basis. There's a lot of confusion about what church is. How about if I ask Jesus? How about if you ask Jesus? Jesus, what's church? What do you think he'd say? You think he'd point to a building? 
that could point to an event? Well, the good news is we have an answer. Because we're going to look right now at a passage from Matthew chapter 16, the first time the word church appears in the New Testament. Highlight the word New Testament. First time the word church appears in the New Testament. And we always talk about the church as the body of Christ. So there is a connection that we are always saying between who Jesus is and who the church is. I'm using the word who intentionally, okay, because the church is, is part of, is the body, okay, so it's personified. That there's a connection between who Jesus is and who the church is. And Jesus actually made that connection the first time. Because when Jesus speaks about the church, the first time it's mentioned in the New Testament is in, is in, is in the context of him answering the question, who do people say that I am? And this discussion with the disciples about, who am I? Who do you think I am? Who do you think I am? That's where we hear the word church for the new time. Matthew chapter 16, verse 18 says this. It says, and also, and I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. And the Greek word there is ekklesia. On this rock I will build my ekklesia, my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. The first time that Jesus mentions the word church, that we see it mentioned in the New Testament, is in the context of something that is going to be built and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And the what it is, we'll come back to that in a second, but we know it's connected to his identity. The cornerstone, that's what Jesus is saying here, I'm going to build my, my church on the rock, which is my identity of you believing that I am who I said I am, which is the Son of God. Now, I said a minute ago, this is the first time the word church or ecclesia is mentioned in the New Testament. It is not the first time it is mentioned in the Bible. Did you know that even though the word church does not appear in the Old Testament, the word church, the word ecclesia, appears more than 75 times? And you know that anything we're reading in English is simply a translation of the original language, whether Hebrew, Greek, or Aramaic. So any translation, you know this, any translation comes with a bias. That's why when people say, what's the best translation in English? Or what's the right translation? There's no right translation. Everyone comes with its pros and its cons. Each one has a little bit of bias. You could translate it this way or this way. So that's why I want to look at the word ecclesia, because there's no bias when that word is written. The word ecclesia has nothing to do with the building. The word ecclesia has nothing to do with the building. It was mentioned over 75 times in the Old Testament, and not once did it have any reference to a building or a structure. It always referred to a people. Let me show you the definition of ecclesia from the Greek dictionary. It says, ecclesia is a gathering of citizens called out from their homes into some public place or an assembly. A gathering of citizens called out for a purpose, for a particular reason. In other words, the word ecclesia, which we say church, but again, stay away from that for a second. The word ecclesia has nothing to do with the building, has nothing to do with religion, has nothing to do with faith. It simply means a group of people called out for a purpose. So you know what would be an ecclesia? It was also used towards military. So here's our nation right here, and you guys, okay, we're going to call you out for a purpose. You're the army, you're the navy, you're the marines, you're the whatever it may be, called out for a purpose. It's not a building, it's a group of people who are called out for a purpose. The other, the other way you would use it is maybe like a sports team. We're in the time of the Olympics right now. So we're going to call out this group over there and say, you're our water polo team. You are being called into, in, in, into the mission and you have a specific purpose. Go get the gold in water polo. I just watched water polo yesterday and I'm fascinated by how it's a sport. So that's why I'm bringing it up now. 
The bottom line is it's not a religious word. It's not a building at all. What it is, it's a group of people who are gathered together or called out for a purpose. That's why, like I said, the Israelites in the Old Testament were called an ecclesia. Israelites in the Old Testament didn't have any buildings. They didn't even have a common place. Like they were scattered all over the world. Okay, and they were all each to their own corner, but they were collectively known as an ecclesia. Why? Because they were called out from all the nations of the world. God called them out and said, you are my family, my children. And in the, in the, in the liturgical prayers, we say a similar phrase, okay, about us as the church today, as the people. When we say what? We say, he made us unto himself a congregation. Okay, that's the translation we say. Newer translations say he made us unto himself an assembled people or an assembly of people, which means that God chose us. He called us out to be something special for him, his children, his ecclesia. One commentator wrote this about the word ecclesia. He says, in all literature, both sacred and secular, in all literature, ancient literature he's talking about, sacred and secular, ecclesia referred to a gathering of people united by a common identity or purpose, never having religious implication. So, all that said, let's say you didn't hear anything that I just said. Common sense. When Jesus said the word ecclesia in Matthew chapter 16, when he was talking to St. Peter and St. John and St. James, and he said, you are my church. How many people think that what was in Peter's mind was, oh, he wants us to build a building. Oh, for sure. What he's saying is, go look at that piece of land over there and see if we can get that. Anybody think that any time his disciples, when they said, you are my church, thought of bricks and mortar, thought of a piece of land, thought of a, any kind of structure, no way. And in fact, if you know Christian history, you know Christian churches as buildings didn't come into history until when? Until the fourth century. So we're talking about at least 300 years, and most would say that was the strongest time of the church, where there was no buildings, which we can't say there was no church. It wasn't until Constantine came along and made Christianity legal. Before that, Christianity was in hiding. People would come to my, or we'd go to her house, and we would all meet, and then we would disperse. But there was no church, dedicated church structure until Christianity became legal after the Edict of Milan in the fourth century. Point here is, Jesus said, I'm gonna build my church, and the people who heard it from his mouth knew instantly, with no explanation, he was not talking about a building, he was talking about a people. He's talking about a people who are united for a purpose, People are coming together for a mission to do something and accomplish something in the world. And that accomplishment is based on belief that he is the son of God. And I say here at STSA, I love that definition. Because that's us. Because we ain't got no building. We don't own this place. We act like we own it on Sundays, but we don't own it. And same thing, we're over in Arlington. Okay, when people come and they say, where are you located? I say, oh, we have the best facility, okay? We have, you know, a seven-story building. Okay, we have a huge parking garage. We don't own it, okay? But on Sunday mornings, we act like we own it. We love the idea that church is more than a building because let me tell you what's happened in the last 10 years here at STSA. 10 years at STSA. We are one church in two locations. We got three priests. We got six staff. We got more than 400 adult members. We got more than 700 total members. We got more than 11,000 people who subscribe and follow us online. And we've done all that with zero buildings. What makes us the church isn't our building. It's our mission. It's bringing ancient faith to a modern world. Let me tell you what else we've done over the last 10 years. Just to show you that a church doesn't need a building. 
I'm not, I'm not into numbers and statistics and bragging and showing off. It's not about that, but this is just about stating facts. In the last 10 years, again, less than 10 years, we have welcomed more than 65 people into the faith through baptism or chrismation in the last 10 years without a building. And actually, we have more slated for later on this month. Okay, we'll be adding to that number. In the last 10 years, again, without a building, we have opened our hearts and our budgets to the community which we are located in, starting first in Arlington and here in Leesburg. And we have invested heavily in the local community. Specifically in Arlington, over the last 10 years, we have partnered with Arlington Public Schools to establish mentor programs and read aloud programs. We partnered with Inova, Fairfax, Inova Hospital System to do uh, different activities there and, and events for the kids with the, uh, the sickle cell. We haven't done anything yet here in Leesburg because we started here during the time of COVID when things were going in the opposite direction, but we're really excited to do that. And in fact, God opened the door. For those who were here three weeks ago, the mayor of Leesburg came to visit here on a Sunday morning, and we had a chance to meet with her, and we're excited to, again, partner with her and the, and the groups that are here in Leesburg that are doing great work and see how we can contribute. We received national recognition for those who missed the announcement, okay, a few months back from Chick-fil-A. We didn't even realize we had applied for it. We just kind of got our name thrown in a hat, and we won the national, well, let's see what it's called here, the Chick-fil-A True Inspiration Award. For our work at Hope Multiply, we're doing the Healthy Start program to feeding kids who are in food insecure situations. They actually gave us $225,000, one of those big fancy checks that we didn't even know we were getting. But they're the ones who called out and said, we appreciate the work you're doing, and they, they, they honored us with that. In addition to that, I don't need any of those rewards. I go to civic association meetings in Arlington, especially now that we have construction coming. I go. I am the number one most popular person in those meetings. I haven't met any of the people. They're like, oh, you with Hope? Okay, and you do, you're the ones who do the stuff in the school, and you got to do the stuff in the hospital. I'm like, yeah, of course, that's what we do. That's how we do it. I don't even know what we do. I don't take any credit for it. I just happen to be, I will say, like, I'm like the queen of England. Like, I just, okay, here we go. Yeah, that's my church. Okay, y'all the ones who are doing the work. Y'all the ones uh, back in Arlington sitting there at Mason. Y'all the ones doing the work. But I'm happy to take the credit for it because the credit goes to the church, the church of God, not to any person. And that's just local. I don't want to go through all the other stuff. That's not even counting the stuff that we're doing through STSA Ministries where we have made available our resources online for free to churches across the world. Hundreds of churches across the world are using our resources to hopefully bring an ancient faith to their modern world as well. And all that to say we've done it with how many buildings? Zero. Because the church is more than a building. But we begin construction this Wednesday. Does any of that change? That's why we're doing this series right now. We need to make sure that we know that none of that changes. Yes, we will soon have a building. That doesn't change our mission. Yeah, the building is not the end. The building is a means to an end. That's why I keep telling people is we're, we're more than a building. We got a big mission. And right now, a building is a part of that. And we want to come together, build that building, raise the money needed, and then check that thing off and then keep on going for the rest of the mission because the building will become a tool to make the mission come, come to fruition, but it is not the mission. And so I'm going to ask you these questions, and I don't, I don't know what the answers are, but I think it's good for us to ask, is what is the church, and why does the church exist? I want you to answer that question in your head. Why does the church exist? Is the church here just to hold services? Is that the goal, to hold services? Or is the goal of the church to make a difference in the world? Is our goal meeting on Sundays? So if we meet every Sunday from now to the end of eternity, did we accomplish our goal? Or should we not just be a meeting of people, but a movement of people accomplishing something? Are we here to just do church? Are we here to be church in the community? 
Are we just a building or are we more than that? So that's why we're doing this series. I know that was a bit of a lengthy introduction, but that's why we're doing it, because we need to remember, especially now that we're going to start seeing shovels and bulldozers, and we're going to start talking about building, we're going to get our hopes up. Oh, it's going to be great to have a building there, and then we're going to have a building here in Leesburg, and then we're going to be done. No, we're going to be done. We're going to be done. Because the work is not the building. The work is much greater than that. We are the ecclesia. We are called out for a purpose, and now it's time for us to refocus on what that purpose is. So what I want to do here today and into the next five weeks is I want us to refocus on why we exist. Who are we? Why are we here? And the way we're going to do that, I think the best summary of our purpose as a church is our core values. Now, those who have been here for a while and gone through the membership group, you heard, you've heard me talk about the core values and the story of how the core values came into existence. It's a great story. I'm not going to go into it right now, but hopefully one day I'll get a chance to tell you how these core values were truly inspired by God. But what I want to do today is I want to go through what I believe is the one core value that symbolizes our purpose more than any other. They're all great, but is this number one? And anytime I go through the core values, I always go back and say, hey, which one of them resonated with you when I, whenever I'm teaching it? And nine out of 10 times, people will say this first core value. And for those who know what it is, first core value here at STSA is limitless acceptance. Limitless acceptance. Can you read this together with me? Let's read it all together. We believe that every person who enters our church is the most important person in the world. That person is sent by God and should be loved and accepted as such. We believe that every person who enters our church is the most important person. Anyone who comes through those doors or those doors or he sneaks through the ones they're not supposed to come through. Okay, anyone who comes through those doors is the most important person in the world. And they're not sent by their mother. They're not sent by an email. They're sent by God himself. And they are to be loved and accepted as such. The first time I ever preached about limitless acceptance, okay, way back okay, in 2012, it actually turned out it was on Mother's Day. And I said at that time, that's from God. Because who is the best, what's the best way to describe limitless acceptance? Moms. Because that's what moms are. And this is no shot at dads, okay? I'm a dad myself. I'm willing to admit where I'm weak and where I'm not weak. Like there's areas that I'm strong, changing tires, okay? fixing things that are broken around the house. This area, when we talk about how God is a fixer of tires, we'll talk about dads on that day. But we're going to talk about limitless acceptance. Dads, we got to talk about our moms. Because moms have an essential quality that dads don't have. And I tried to put it into, like, to articulate what is that quality that they have? What is that one thing that makes moms different than dads? And here's what I came up with. It's not very eloquent. But moms are never grossed out. Moms are never grossed out, or at least they hide it very well. I can't say the same about dads, especially about myself. I'm not talking about you, but I'll talk about myself. There's two stories that I honestly, I could tell, tell you story after story, and Marianne can tell you story after story, but there's two that come to mind that highlight how dads get grossed out and maybe moms don't, at least in our house. I remember one time, I'm not a vomit guy, okay? Like I don't, I don't deal well with vomit. I actually have like a streak going of about 13 years where I haven't vomited myself. And I've held it in in some very, I hate vomit. I don't know what to do with it. I don't know when someone vomits, what do you do? Do you set it on fire? Okay, do you call the police? I don't know what to do when it comes to vomit. Well, there was one day that I was driving both of my kids home from whatever event it was. Okay, school, dentist, I don't know what I was doing. Okay, soccer. So I'm driving them both home. They're both sitting in the backseat. They're probably aged like three and seven or whatever it may be, or three and five or somewhere in that range, okay? And they're in the backseat. Marianne's at work. I'm coming home. And as we are approaching the home, one of them does the vomiting, the projectile kind. 
Okay, like the rocket launcher, like coming at you, even in Arlington, like you could see it coming at you right there. Like, boom, all over the place. And it's like splashing and it's like everywhere. So I don't know what to do. We're about to pull into the house. So here's what I do. You're gonna judge me. This is what I did. I pulled into the house. I told everyone, sit tight. We rolled down the windows. We called mom at work. We said, mom, take your time. There's no rush. We'll be here in the driveway till you come home. And we sat there, and we sat there. And I told her, she's like, do you need me? I'm like, no, 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 we're fine. No one's gonna unbuckle their seatbelt. No one's gonna untie their shoe. We're gonna stay exactly as is till mom comes home, and that's exactly what we did. Mom took care of it. Let's go back even further into the time machine. When my eldest son, my firstborn, the pride and joy of my life, my son and my daughter, okay, both are my pride, but I'm saying when you have your first child, when the moment that he was born, Marianne had a C-section. Okay, and if you ever had a C-section, you know that like the moms, they're like in, in the table and they're like, you know, they can't do stuff. Okay, so the dad has to be semi-involved in this situation. And I remember, okay, so Marianne, okay, you know the mom's like, okay, the baby's born and like to hold the baby as soon as the baby comes out of the womb. Okay, like to hold the baby. I don't know if you've ever seen a C-section. Okay, you're not supposed to because there's like that curtain. So you know me, like I'm always trying to gather sermon material. So I'm like... And I'm like, Marianne, you do not know what's happening on the other side. And I'm like, can you feel anything? She's like, I can't. I'm like, they just like removed your pancreas. They just like took it out, okay? And then they like took out your liver and your spleen. And I'm like, explain to her. And she's just, you know, like in heaven, like just so happy. She can't feel a thing. So they take the baby out and they can't give the baby to the mom. So this is like the moment, like the baby and they come to the dad and me, I'm the dad. And I go, I kind of shake it off like that. And I just actually what came out of my mouth. This wasn't prepared, okay? What came out of my mouth was, can you towel him down first? <laughs> can you wipe him off? And the nurse looked at me like, you monster. <laughs> you monster. But they were slimy and drippy. And, and if you remember seeing the movie when the aliens come out of people's stomachs, that's what it looked like, okay? So bottom line is, I get grossed out. Moms don't. Moms, okay, some moms, if they could bathe in that juice that's dripping from the baby, they would. Okay, if they could, okay, like what do moms do when a baby's about to vomit? They run to catch it. I don't know why, but they run to catch it with their hands because moms don't get grossed out. I gathered a collection of things that I've seen in church, okay, that moms do that gross me out. Okay, here's the top three. I have 10, but I just go through the top three. When they wipe the snot of the kid with like this, okay, when the kid's got a little boogie hanging, okay, and they just like that, okay, gross me out. Number two, when a pacifier falls on the ground, the dirty, nasty ground, how does a mom clean it? <laughs> Disgusting. And then my favorite of all is when there's a smell and then the mom smells the kid's butt to determine what's inside. And I'm like, what's inside? Whatever it is, get it out. Okay, now follow me here. As nasty as all that is. It is the perfect pick, picture, in a little bit more sanitary way, okay? Perfect picture of God, but sanitary, hygienic. Because the lesson there is this, is that God accepts me as I am. God accepts me as I am. No matter how dirty, no matter how disgusting, no matter how much everyone else is like, gross, get him away from me. And let's be honest, okay, if I could look at everyone in the eye right now, there have been times when you've been gross. There have been times when I've been gross. 
There have been times I've been grossed out by myself. I know others have been grossed out by me in a spiritual sense. But God, never gross. Never towel him off before you bring him to me. Never wait for someone else to come clean him, and then I'll come. Never. God accepts me as I am. And that's why, you know, we always talk about God as our father, but did you know there's some verses in the Bible that talk about God has motherly qualities as well? Isaiah chapter 66, verse 13 says, as a mother comforts her child, so will I comfort you. This is not saying God is male or female, obviously, but it's saying God embodies the perfect qualities of a father and embodies the perfect qualities of a mother as well. God is complete because God has never grossed out by us. Now, let me tell you right off the bat, what I'm talking about here today, limitless acceptance, is the exact opposite of the way the world is today. This is a very hard concept in the world. This was hard for me to teach 10 years ago. This is quadruple hard today in the world that we live in today because somehow everything is exponentially okay today in the world. And what I mean by that is the world today says there's only two options. There's right and then there's wrong. There's good, then there's bad. There's with me, then there's against me. There's either you're on the left side or you're on the right side, but there's nothing even close to in between. And while I get it, Okay, and while I get it, that it's easy and it's natural for us to say, no, those things, Father Anthony, those are bad. Those are gross. Those are sin and those are really, really bad and those, are, those should not be accepted. I get it. That's our nature. That's how all of us are. But here's the problem. Okay, just follow me with me. Follow along with me here. And, and I realize that I'm going to say some stuff that some people's going to be, it's not going to sit well, but just stick with me. Okay, and then you can disagree with me at the end, but just stick with me here. What if the way you see the world isn't the way God sees the world? Is there a chance of that? Like, take that one to social media. Because social media is the exact opposite of that, which is the way I see the world is the right way. If you don't see it that way, you're wrong. It's very simple. You don't have to see the world the way I see it. You can be wrong. That's social media. That's the world today. That's politics. That's everything. But what if your view of the world, which I respect, okay, I respect your view of the world, I respect it. What if it's not the same as God's view? What if your view of people isn't the same view as God's view of people? Like with us, like I said, there's certain sins, like let's be honest, there's certain sins that are, quote, acceptable. And there's certain sins that are not acceptable. Like no one's ever going to say, no, you don't belong in this church, you're gluttony. No, we, we bring it, okay, we're all gluttony, bring it. No one ever, no one ever, no one ever says you don't belong because you're gluttony. No one ever says you don't belong because you uh, may have told a lie before in your life. Because we all talk, we all do that. But then what about other sins? Like we look at it and say, okay, this sin is a heterosexual sin. This person's struggling with heterosexual sins. Okay. But homosexual sins? Mm. We say this person is messing around with having premarital sex. Okay. And they're messing around. And, but you know what I mean? Like, you know, boys with boys, girls with girls. But this one got pregnant. Uh. Same sin, but kind of different appearance. So these people, forget about sins. Let's go straight to the heart of the matter, the thing we care about most. These people believe in masks? These people don't believe in masks? You kidding me? You want me to accept a, a, a non-masker or a masker in my community? Watch this one. I get you all right now. This person voted for Trump. <laughs> what if there's certain people that we see a certain way, and I'm not saying my opinion, I'm just asking questions. What if we don't see it the way God sees it? What if God sees it different? In case you don't believe me, that God doesn't get grossed out, <clears throat> look at a passage in scripture right now. 
ask yourself, if you were to ever come face to face with Christ, what would be the worst possible way to do that? You meet the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Okay, if I told you today, you're going to meet Jesus, okay, later this afternoon, you're going to look nice, you're going to be behave, you're going to repent, you're going to like try to look like you're in good shape. What is the worst, worst, worst possible way to meet him? I'm going to go with a passage from John chapter 8, where you remember the Southwest commercials, want to get away? Remember those commercials, like want to get away? That's this lady right here. And John chapter 8 meets Jesus in the worst possible way, the most likely to not be accepted by Jesus. John chapter 8, verse 3. It says, Then the scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Hold that thought. Not just accused, but caught in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. What do you say? Woman was caught in adultery. Again, not accused, not speculated, not we have evidence. He caught her in the very act. And of course, we they left the guy alone because nobody cares about the guy. Okay, so the guy, they caught the, clearly they caught the guy in the act as well, but nobody cares about him. They dragged the girl. And I'm just imagining, caught in the very act. That means she's probably not wearing any clothes. They dragged her out by her hair, kicking and screaming, and maybe she managed to grab the sheet to try to cover up. And they threw her in the middle of the town square. How are you feeling right now if you're this woman? Surrounded by people. People, by the way, that you work with. People, by the way, that your family, your friends, the people in your synagogue, okay, the people who you, like, that you deal with on a daily basis. There you are, naked, thrown in the middle. Again, maybe you got a sheet. You're crying, you're screaming, people are shouting, they got stones, and there you are. Welcome, you get to meet Jesus today. Oh my goodness. If I had one prayer in that moment, I would pray, earth, open up and swallow me up. I just want to die. Shame, guilt, embarrassed, mortified, humiliated. I would say that's scratching the surface. Would you agree with me? I'm going to read the rest of the story, but I just, I want to pause on this. I promise you, I promise you, I promise you, I promise you that there are people, maybe some of us here today, who feel that way. I promise you. There are people who you know who feel exactly that way. Ashamed to be in front of God. Humiliated by what they've done. Embarrassed, mortified, earth swallowed me up. And if I can be honest, many of us maybe not feeling that way today, but we have felt that way at one time. And maybe the reason why it took us so long to come to church and took us so long to come back to God is because of that feeling. Because we felt we were unacceptable. We felt we were too gross. How does Jesus look at them? I know how the people look at them. I know how I look at them. How does Jesus look at them? We're going to read. We said earlier, church is body of Christ. So what Jesus looks, how Jesus looks, has very, very major significant implications for us because we are his body. So let's see how Jesus responds. Verse 6. This they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. So when they had continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. 
Then those who heard it being convicted by their conscience went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. And Jesus was alone and the woman standing in the midst. Okay, now ready? So what Jesus does, he sends away all the accusers. He's all the people who are accusing her and judging her and shaming her. Okay, we're going to start, like what they say, we don't know, but the, the biblical scholars say that what he wrote in the ground, he started to write people's names. So he wrote this person's name and their sin. So all of a sudden, I'm like this big judge and elder guy, and he writes there, Father Anthony, and he writes my sin. So all of a sudden, I'm like, uh, you know, we don't need to do this. I'm going to go now. That's what he started to do. That's why the people left one by one. So the first thing he says is, you don't see the way I see. You don't see the way I see. You step back. And now he shows us how he deals with it. Verse 10. He said to her, woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, listen carefully, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. What did he not say? He didn't say, towel her off. Go get yourself fixed, lady, and then come back to me. He didn't say, how could you do that? He had a right to. He had a right to say, don't you know this says this in the law? Didn't you go to Sunday school when you were a kid? What were you thinking, lady? He could have said any one of that. What did he say? He said, I don't condemn you. He sees gross with compassion. He sees the unacceptable as acceptable. And if we're his body, we're going to need to do the same thing. Now, he also says, go and sin no more. So, so let, let, let's just kind of talk about this real quick. Don't misread, go and sin no more. Don't look at that as saying, see, Jesus is telling her what she did is bad. Because the sequence is important. He didn't start with, go and sin no more. He started by sticking his neck out on the line in front of all those people saying, everybody back up. He showed love. He showed acceptance. He showed compassion. And then he gave her guidance. And he told her, this sin is no good. You should. So he's not accepting the sin by any means. But the sequence is important. He doesn't go to the child, a child who has vomited on himself or pooped their pants. Okay, He doesn't go to the child who's dirty and say, clean yourself up and then I'll give you a hug. No, the sequence is important. Again, that's dads versus moms. Moms, hug first, clean second. Hug first, clean second. We are like, go get cleaned. And then of course we welcome you. Once you're clean, welcome to the club. But hey, let's be honest. I was welcomed here before I was clean. And I think you were as well. And I look back at my life and there was times in my life where I was very unclean. I was very unacceptable. And I am thankful. And aren't you thankful as well that somebody accepted you when you weren't worthy of it? Aren't you thankful? I am so thankful that God looked at me in my dirty when he could have said, this boy doesn't know anything. This boy doesn't know how his left hand from his right hand. This boy had great parents. This boy had a great church. This boy had everything great. And he messed it all up. But God didn't. God had compassion. He loved first, clean second. We're guilty of the opposite. If this was us, forget about us. If this was me, I have a problem in life. Because I'm a preacher, I'm always in preaching mode. You can ask this to my kids. My kids hate it. They're always in preaching mode. I'm always, okay, I always look at the world in terms of a sermon, okay, in terms of teaching what's right and what's wrong. Okay, so let's say I remember this one time that we were at whatever, one of those cafeteria restaurants, okay, and you, you hold the tray with the food. So I try to instruct the children. It's very 
clear ways to, in, to load the, the tray so that it's balanced so when you're carrying it, it doesn't fall, okay? Because you put the cup over here, the plate, like you can't overshoot on the left, okay? You have to keep it balanced. So a kid dropped the tray. So what do I do? Well, it's because you put the salad on the left and you put the drink on the right and what were you thinking and the physics and whatever. And I could just, afterwards, I think back on it, thinking to myself, shut up and hug the kid. That's what the kid needed. The kid knew that they made a mistake. The kid knew that they made a big mess. The kid, like the kid didn't think like, oh, this was fun. The kid knew that. Same with this lady. She didn't need somebody to tell her, you know what you did is a sin. Yeah, hello, I know that. I know that it's a sin. That's why people have rocks and are about to throw it at me. We think what the world is missing today is people to tell them their sin, is people to say that they're bad. You, trust me, people know their sin. People know they're bad. You know what people don't know? Is that they can be forgiven. And they can be accepted despite their sin. That's what they don't know. And that's what limitless acceptance is all about. We're the body of Christ. We're going to accept and love before anything else. Romans 15, verse 7. Again, this is, this is me, this is you. Accept one another then just as Christ accepted you. Accept one another as Christ accepted you. I need to accept others the way I have been accepted. Said another way, God's limitless acceptance of me must translate to my limitless acceptance of others. It can't be anything else. If I'm the body, if there's a part, we have lots of doctors right here. If there's a part of my body that is not aligned with my head, if my head is saying to my hand, move up and it doesn't move up, then I have a dysfunction in my body. Like I have a sickness that needs medication. If my brain is sending signals, move and it can't move. What if the head is acting in a certain way and the body is doing different? Then the body has a sickness. The body has a disease. The body needs to be treated. The body must align with the head. And the head, Christ, limitless acceptance. Not accepting of sin, but accepting of sinners. None are too disgusting for me. <clears throat> Practically speaking, you may have heard of a lady named Brene Brown. Okay, she's written several books and she's given talks on YouTube. Um, she says something very nice. I like very much what she says. She says, it's hard to hate someone up close. It's hard to hate someone up close. She says, distance demonizes. Distance demonizes. And let me tell you what this means practically. How easy, how easy is it to hate someone on social media? How easy is that? To follow someone on the Facebook or on the Twitter and to hate their guts because they posted this and they posted and reposted this and they shared this. It's easy to hate on social media. It's easy to read a blog post and hate the guts of the person who wrote it. It's easy because it's a distance. But the closer you get to a person, you remove the belief, the action, the whatever, and you see a person with a face and a person with a story. So I look at it this way. I don't look at it as you fill in the blank with whatever it is or whatever sin you, you're talking about right here. It's not, you know, those people over there, okay? That guy over there who believes this or who posted this or who voted this or who thinks this. It's not that. Don't, 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 don't make it anonymous like that. You know who it is? It's Billy or it's Joey or it's Susie or it's whatever her name is. It's Billy or Joey or Susie whose mom walked out on them when they were four. And yeah, you know what? They do have some crazy beliefs and they do believe funny things politically. But you know what? If your mom walked out on you when you were four, we're going to give you a little bit of grace. So we're going to go a little bit of grace because it's not just those people. 
Those people have a story. It's not just those people who believe this. It's, you know what, like I said, fill in the name. Let's just go Anthony so we don't accuse anyone. Okay, it's Anthony. It's Anthony who struggled with depression and anxiety for many years ever since this thing happened to his grandfather. So you know what? Let's give him a little bit of slack and let's understand his story. Let's understand there's a reason why he's behaving the way he's behaving. Do you see where I'm going? It's easy to demonize when it's like those people. And you know, by the way, this is not new. This is what was in the biblical times. Isn't that what they did in the Bible times? Oh yeah, the Samaritans. Oh yeah, those Samaritans. Nothing. Yeah, the, 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 that's why Jesus told the story about the good Samaritan. The Samaritans are over there. Or remember when, when they said, what good can come out of Nazareth? Oh, he's from Nazareth? Nothing good can come out of them. That wasn't Jesus. Jesus looked at people with names. The society said tax collectors. Jesus said, I don't know any tax collectors. I know Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus had a tough life, but he's a good dude. So I'm gonna give Zacchaeus a break. You'd be like, yeah, of course, Zacchaeus, yeah, of course. Jesus didn't see prostitutes and harlots. He saw a Samaritan woman sitting all by herself by that well. He said, I don't know what you're talking about, harlots and pro I don't know what you're talking about. I see a lady, and her name is Fotini. Okay, that was her bachelor's name. I see Fotini, and that, she's had a tough life. I'm gonna go talk to Fotini. Jesus didn't see thieves and murderers and criminals. He saw one thief named Demas crucified next to him. He didn't see him as a thief and a criminal and a murderer. He saw him as a guy who needed a break. Not a guy who needed a sermon. Not a guy who needed to be told, what were you thinking? Not a guy who needed to be told about God's wrath and judgment. He knew about that. A guy who needed to be told about God's love, God's acceptance, despite all of that. When we see people messy, our instinct tells us to move away from people's mess, to run, get as far away as possible. It's gross. Go away. Jesus tells us the exact opposite, to move towards it. Like that lady in John chapter 8. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 9, he's speaking about the people in front of him that he sees, and again, he shows the difference between how he views versus how we view. He says this, as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at a tax office, and he said to him, follow me. So he arose and followed him. Now it happened as Jesus sat at the table in his house. Now watch this, behold, many tax collectors and many sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. We look at that and say, why many tax collectors and why many sinners? Jesus said, what are you talking about many? Talking about Matthew? The guy who's going to end up writing the first gospel of the New Testament? That's the guy you're so upset about? The one who's going to be a witness to me, to, to the Jewish people? Jesus didn't see groups. When the Pharisees saw it, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard that, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. So I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. He says, Look, and again, I know we have a lot of doctors here. You don't go to a doctor and say, watch out, there's sick people. Yeah, that's why I'm here. No, stay away, doctor. That room has a sick person. Go to this where the doctors are. No, the doctor didn't come for the doctors. The doctor came for the sick. And that's what Jesus was, and that's where we're supposed to be. He didn't wait for us to be clean, to come to him. He came to us even while we were dirty. And if we're going to be limitless acceptance, we need to be the same way. <clears throat> now, Last thing I'm going to say, and I'll go through this quick. Earlier, I talked about how God's acceptance for us is like moms. 
Let's talk about the flip side of that. When we are not accepting of God's children, God is also like a mom. Again, greatest mom on the planet is my mom, or not my mom, my wife right there, okay? My mom is the best and my wife is the best. Tie for number one, okay, sorry. My wife is the kindest person on the planet. Ain't no one, ain't, can anyone stand up here and say, no, they've seen Marianne act very aggressive. Like, they know it's Marianne. But you know who's seen Marianne act aggressively? You want to watch her act aggressively? Go touch one of her kids. Go try to lay a finger on one of her kids, and then you're going to see what we call Mama Bear around the house, okay? Mama Bear come out. And Mama Bear, I told you all this story before. There's one time when, she, when the kid was three years old, okay? One kid pushed him on the playground. I thought that little boy, okay, that little boy was going to need like a witness protection program to get out of recess, okay, to get home from the carpool line. I was like, this guy's not going to make it. Marianne's going to catch him, and she's going to do something to him. I think that is part of God as well. Because I think in the same way that moms are protective of their children, I think God is as well. And who are moms most protective of? Let's say a mom have three kids. Protect them all equally? No. Who do you protect most, mom? The weakest. And I think God is the same way. Imagine that you have a son or a daughter. Let's start with a son. You have a son who has a speech problem. He stutters. And it's a struggle for him. And then you find a school, a specialty school, that says that we can help fix this, okay? And they specialize in, in kids with speech disorders. And you come to the school with your kid, and they say, sorry, your kid is too bad. Go ahead and fix him first, and then we'll take care of him. Let's say you have a daughter who has a blemish on her face somewhere. Childhood accident, something happened. And let's say the kids at school are making fun of her and calling her ugly and telling her, why do you have that on your face? Actually, no, let's not make it the kids. Let's make it the teachers at the school. Let's make it the teachers at the school are calling her ugly and making fun of her. How would you feel as a mom or a dad? They don't have a child. Can I be honest? Forgive me. What if that's how God feels every Sunday? What if that's how God feels every Sunday when he sees his kids come to church and he knows they're struggling? He knows they have problems. That's why he sent them to church. Because we're the ones who advertise. We're the body of Christ. We'll treat you as Jesus treated you. We will love you the way we have been loved by God. That's what we advertise. And then they came here. And they get sent back, told, you're not good enough. You don't fit here. No, we will accept you. But go fix yourself, go towel off, and then come back. You know why I feel so passionately about this? Because I get, I get these actual calls. Like I'm telling you hypotheticals. I'm actually not telling you hypotheticals. I'm telling you real. I get these actual phone calls from actual moms and actual dads who tell me, Father Anthony, I know my son is rude. I know he's difficult. I know he has crazy beliefs. And he, if you give him a chance, he will talk your ear off and try to convince you that everything is a conspiracy. And I, I get it. I know. But I got nothing. Please help him. What do you want me to say? You're now, you're now in my shoes. What should I say? No, we don't belong here. Send him back. Please fix him. Then send him to us. Like, what do you want me to say? Again, I'm not talking about people who believe this or people who do this. I'm talking about little Joey or little Susie who is struggling, who has a sickness. We advertise we are here and we have Christ, the true healer. 
What do you want me to say? I only know how to say one thing, that we are limitless acceptance. And every person who enters our church is the most important person in the world. They will be loved and accepted just by us, the same way they are by God. I don't know what else to say. That's why I tell you, every Sunday, every Sunday, every Sunday, every Sunday, you have a chance to do something great for the kingdom of God. Did you know that every Sunday you have a chance to change someone's view of God? Every Sunday, every Sunday, you have a chance to change the narrative of God in someone's life. You have a chance to change the narrative of church. Church is just hypocrites, okay? Send them to me. That's what I want to hear. I want to hear you say, the person who says church is just hypocrites, send them to me. I pray that person sitting next to me, I'm going to show them church is not hypocrites. Church is not welcoming. Church is not going to greet me. Church is going to treat me like I'm an outcast because I did this or because I posted this or because I don't believe this or because I do believe this, okay? Send them to us. God, send them to us. That's what we want. That's what we're here. We're here to change the narrative. We're here to change people's view of God and of the church and show them limitless acceptance. Last verse. <clears throat> Think about that person who may be sitting next to you right now, for all you know. You may greet as soon as we finish here. It says, take heed, Matthew 18, 10. Take heed that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I say to you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. Think of that verse next time you want to judge someone. Think of that verse next time you want to give someone the cold shoulder. Next time you want to say, that person doesn't belong here. Their angels see the face of my Father who is in heaven. The Samaritan woman was a mess. Jesus walked towards her, limitless acceptance. Zacchaeus was a mess. Jesus went right at him, limitless acceptance. The John chapter 8 lady caught in adultery in the very act. Oh my goodness. He said, get out of my way. I'm busy. I go straight to that lady. And that's your story and my story too. When we didn't deserve it, he came to us. That's why, like I said, limitless acceptance is not an option. It's how we've been accepted and it's how we will accept others. So with that said, put it right up here on the screen one last time. I want us all to read it again. And over in Arlington, I want to hear you all reading it out loud as well. I can hear you over there as well. All read it together. We believe that every person who enters our church is the most important person in the world. That person is sent by God and should be loved and accepted as such. Jesus walked into my life when I didn't deserve it. And he came to me and accepted me when I didn't do anything to deserve it. And it's not an option. It's our duty to do the same with others. Let's stand together for a prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your limitless acceptance of us. We ask you, Lord, to plant that same love and acceptance for others inside all of our hearts, that we may truly be your hands and your feet, your body here on this earth. And we ask this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, the prayers of all your saints. Hear us as we pray thankfully, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus, our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory. We want to invite you one more time to partner with us in bringing an ancient faith to a modern world by donating any amount to morethanabuilding.org. 
follow us on social media for real-time updates and even more inspiration during the week.